Make me some toast. My brother refused the heels of bread with a profuse protest and sophomoric repugnance, egregiously poor behavior for a child, and even worse for a teenager who had just barely completed his second year of high school. Make me some toast with grape jelly. He growled to our plaintive mother, muttering her morning prayers in her corner of the dining area on a hot, uneventful summer day as he sleepily transitioned down the central corridor from his bedroom to the living room and directly into one of our rickety recliners, bought on credit, that were far too ample for the cramped spaces they occupied. Our paltry open-floor layout consisted of no room truly separated from any other, nor truly conjoined. One might make a corollary in observation of the relationships of our immediate family unit, in each other's vicinity, but undefined. Whereas the family could have benefited from stronger disciplined leadership and more open and compassionate communication, the house could have benefited from more volume and more walls. The uninspiring layout of our puny home had no flow, and neither did the toast prince as he consisted in his rut, his lethargic shuffling and aimless morning routine. Make me some toast, spread the jelly first, all the way to the edges. Plop. He'd sink into the lazy boy and kick back the side handle to raise the footrest, as if he'd just finished a double shift of grueling work at the blast furnace down at Republic Steel. Make me some toast, spread the jelly first, all the way to the edges, then cut off the crust. If she didn't do it exactly that way, it wound up sliding down the wall leading toward the recently shattered dish on the ragged carpet that used to be some other shade of blue. In her ragged house dress, which used to be some other shade of its tired colorlessness, just like her past used to be some other shade of purpose, she hobbled with her cane to the yellow speckled kitchen that she detested two feet away from her morning perch, and holding on to the counter or refrigerator for balance, she prepared the perfect squares of jellied toast and, teetering all the way, delivered it to the recliner. This gesture comprised and compromised undertones of love and dedication. He was, after all, her firstborn, or so we thought. Perhaps she pushed through her own pain and his admonitions because she would have given anything to be able to do this small act of kindness for some secret child that she had to give away so many, many years prior. She may have been sculpting and serving the perfected slices while imagining and wishing for another distant son, one who never said, I hate you. The Toast Prince received his plate with no gratitude as he lounged, holding court in front of the TV, all the while loathing her and wishing for another distant mother or to have never been born at all. 
hobbling back to her perch. Her mind re-echoed the warnings from her closest lifelong girlfriends, Louise, Stella, Nancy, that if she let him answer back the way he was doing at age 11 and 12, he would be telling her to go to hell by the time he was 16. They were wrong. He started to tell her to go to hell when he was 15. His rigid morning routine of stern orders for crustless toast paled in comparison to the vulgar verbal anger that would likely arise in later hours of the day, any day, every day. While consuming his perfectly square toast and commenting loudly to no one in particular as to which TV news personality or talk show host was a complete moron, diagonally across from him in her two and a half walls of the dining area, she sat in a nearly silent muttering, head rotating and tilting between folding and unfolding shoulders as if underwater in a drowning, sinking, slow gyration with expressive brows expanding and rising and then caving and falling atop her large, dark Lebanese eyes, emphasizing the remorse, sadness, and loss going through her head and drawn on the face of her collective contemplative and very odd pantomime. With the dithering of a Parkinson's patient, she shook slowly out of the trance when I'd appear from my room. No longer able to concentrate on John Knowles, a separate piece, or enjoy Barry Manilow's Even Now album because of the loud TV opposite my bedroom wall, I emerged careful not to look at my brother the wrong way for fear of inciting his unreasonable aggression and physical torment and punishment. Upon seeing me, the younger, kinder, and more compassionate son, who never said, at least not until well after my late teens, I hate you. She morphed into a broken smile and with a slight lilt of rare joy emitting from her large eyes, only slightly less large than normal in accord with the contraction of her lean facial muscles, exerted the forced smile at me. Me, the last saving hope for her in this shack at 940 Eden Ridge Drive, also known as her coffin. Do you want toast? She huskily asked, between slow drags on her cigarette and sips of her coffee. I declined. I made two eggs for myself, sunny side up, and fetched my own bowl of grape nuts with milk, refilled her water glass and coffee cup, and joined her at the round Formica table while reading my latest issue of Sheet Music magazine. My unconscious humming while looking at the musical scores raised the ire of the toast prince. Slamming the footrest in the downward position, launching in my direction, he followed through with a severe punch to my arm or a swipe to the side of my head. This normal morning greeting from the angry toast prince, a restless, jealous cane at the ready to murder my able, 
propelled him into criticisms over humming while I ate, over how I carried myself, how I had no friends who were boys, and then followed his vile assessment of her in the ugly ragged housecoat and how she lived in the past and was a Christian martyr in her own mind. He'd then head to his room to go back to sleep, his big plan for the day, leaving the plate with crumbs and jelly on an end table, having jolted aside the crowded candles and statues of saints surrounding the framed pictures of one of her dead relatives, for and to whom she had been compassionately and devoutly praying during her odd pantomime prior to my joining her at the dining area table. I joined her at the table because, at fourteen, I hadn't yet given up on her. In the middle of the night, if I heard one of her coughing fits, I'd still rush to the kitchen and bring a glass of water to her side where she slept in the living area in the Toast Prince's recliner. She hadn't slept in the same room as my dad for years, and I had grown far too much for her to keep sharing my bed. From her Christian martyr soapbox, she frequently proclaimed that she was moving closer and closer, room by room, toward the front door, and the next place she would be sleeping would be at the funeral home. She would add that we were not to spend a lot of money on the casket and that a cardboard box would suffice. Dad used to rush to get the water of life to soothe her abrupt coughing fits, and then Johnny took over when he was about seven when Dad gave up on her, and then I was handed the baton in this relay about the time I was seven, when nine-year-old Johnny gave up on her and started mocking her and calling her a hypochondriac and a true Christian martyr instead of fetching the water of life for her. There was no one left to replace me. She had known that from many years back and had been training me all along. Oh, my Tommy, I'm probably not going to live that long, but I hope I live long enough to see you graduate from high school. Kneeling down in front of me, she zipped up my little coat and got me ready for the afternoon bus. I never never graduated from high school. She had tripped over some rocks and got tangled in the wires sticking up out of the ground from an old fence in the middle of some abandoned lot on the old east side during her junior or senior year. She told the story in both versions. The proof was right there on her left shin where the skin never grew back to completely cover the bone. My My leg leg was in a full cast for six months. Sometimes her leg had been in a cast for nine months and sometimes for a whole year. I wondered if that was why she needed the cane in addition to her pills, prayers, heating pads, and Epsom salts. On the verge of tears, nodding for me to join her, she invoked the Blessed Mother and Jesus to be our intercessors to God, that I have a safe journey to and from my three hours at kindergarten. 
When the bus dropped me off later that afternoon, and then every afternoon following my full days of first grade and second grade and third grade, I was always relieved to see that she was still alive and not in the hospital yet again, or worse. Tommy, when, when someone, someone tells me he's sick, sick I, I believe, believe him. him. That was my ticket to start skipping school in the first grade whenever I wanted. I learned how to make myself vomit just as the bus was coming down the street. When my dad caught on to the game, he locked me out on the front porch and shouted through the door that I'd have to stay out there all day if I didn't get on that damn bus. Eventually, they delivered several sets of clean shirts, socks, pants, and an extra pair of Nikes bought on credit like everything else for Mrs. Workman to keep in her lower desk drawer so that I could change at school and not have to come home after every stomach eruption. The other first grade homeroom teachers hated me for making their kids walk through my mess on the way to or from recess. Second grade was better, no more vomiting, but plenty of questionably warm forehead discoveries and suggested stomach aches. I'll, I'll send, send a note that, that you have a virus. a virus. I'd stay in my pajamas, refill her coffee, then pour myself a cup using the same mug I had been drinking from the night before while we watched the late, late, late movie together, Georgie Girl or Breakfast at Tiffany's or a really old one like His Girl Friday. His growl first thing every morning for toast and his mockery of her comical display of feigned suffering and overt religiosity punished her for her lack of discipline over her own well-being and her misuse of compassion towards me. He didn't want to stand by silently and witness me evolving into a weak Christian martyr. 940 Eden Ridge, the only one of its kind, there being no other street in America duplicating that compound name, was more ironic than unique, less like a mythical garden and more of a genuine wasteland. Every doorknob was either rusted stiff, wobbly, dangling, or missing altogether. Blue painter's tape remained around the perimeter of the bathroom tile for decades after interest was lost in the second hour of that shoddily attempted home improvement. Bedroom and closet doors remained unattached via their broken hinges, creating an interior of non-functional lean-tos, and the gloomy walls had absorbed as much smoke exhalation as they could withstand, the evidence of which lingered in my bedspread, our bathroom towels, and, as my teachers pointed out, my clothing and hair. The primordial dwellers of 940 Edenridge never became fully conscious of their shame, or ours, and they buckled and collapsed over and over to this Eden's mortal enemies, the lurking predators of debt, hypochondria, alcoholism, and discontent. This Eden, no paradise to begin with, served as a banishment from the rest of the world. 
No wonder John steeped himself in jealousy or nihilism with a mother who mourned the past or lived in the present only through delusions of religious fervor, always claiming that whatever eventuates is what God wills it to be. And with a father who lived on a wing in a prayer and whose philosophy for life amounted to, oh, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Dad was not without optimism and hope, which he purchased in increments of one, two, three, and five dollars. Ohio and Pennsylvania, and sometimes even all the way to West Virginia, tickets for the daily pick three and pick four, along with the Powerball, Mega Millions, and occasionally, for the sake of financial diversification, scratch-offs were jammed into all of his coat and pants pockets. In a red, college-ruled, spiral-bound notebook which he had confiscated from our school supplies, he recorded, line by line, day by day, the results of each and every televised lottery pick. His extensive journal of thousands of numerical sequences served as a guide, patterns to unencrypt and unlock his future. Whereas I had no idea regarding which numbers to pick or not to pick, I predicted one solid, unalterable, and sure fact. The money spent on string after string of those promising figures was gone forever. Tomorrow matters more and more the smarter one gets. John, a spelling bee first runner-up two years in a row, seventh and eighth grade, had been on track to make tomorrow matter not only for spelling but even more for basketball until he discovered an escapism from his dudgeon. Dudgeon, may I have a definition? Dudgeon, a feeling of resentment, anger, Dudgeon. D-U-D-G-E-O-N. Dudgeon. Until he discovered an escape from his dudgeon for 940 Eden Ridge through alcohol and weed, the only relief from his acrimonious manifesto, Life sucks and then you die. Acrimonious. A-C-R-I-M-O-N-I-O-U. S. Acrimonious. For mom, only yesterday's mattered, and in holy mantras to her icons and agonies of yesteryear, she sacrificed her potential, save for her truly magnificent prowess for baking, the one positive activity of her entire existence. For dad... Dog races, horse races, and, of course, the daily and weekly lottery awakened but never fulfilled his expectations. The periodicity of his cycle of upper-arcing hopefulness to lower-arcing depression he calibrated with beer, whiskey, and her plentiful baked goods. 
Tomorrow never stopped mattering to me, and eventually I taught myself the spirituality of living in the moment, but not without a consideration of those present choices in terms of how they privileged or restricted the future. If only my parenting, which started when I was about nine years old, could have set that standard for the whole house, we would have not only had flowers bedded in the barren plots around the perimeter of our micro-dwelling, we would have all learned to live bigger than the walls and the half-walls that confined us.